here from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Do you uh, remember the, the first concert you ever went to? Um, I, I remember mine. I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, it was 1994. That sort of dates me a little bit. Um, but I was going through a bit of a country phase, and I, along with a friend, went to see Reba McIntyre. Anybody ever heard of Reba McIntyre? Wow, this is a great crowd. Okay. All right. Uh, ever heard of Alan Jackson? Okay, he came on before. Okay, all right. Um, how about Diamond Rio? Wow, some Diamond Rio fans here. So I had not heard of, of Diamond Rio when I went to this, this, the first concert that I ever went to. And, uh, and so when this band came and they took the stage and began to play, I was like, who, who are these people? And this is really disappointing. And why, I mean, I... Like, I think I paid to see Reba McIntyre. Why can't I just hear Reba McIntyre, right? So um, I'm, I'm sitting there, and what I learned from my first concert is that there are always opening acts, right? And opening acts always have uh, two purposes. The first is to warm the crowd up, right? They're, they're there to get you out of your seat and to get you ready and, and fill you with anticipation for the headliner that's coming. It's to warm you up. It's to prepare you, right? That's, that's the, the first job. The second job is to contrast the headliner. It's, it's a, you're, you're looking at their show that they're putting on, and then when, when the, the headliner comes on, you see the difference, right? The, the opening act is it's usually uh, the stage is smaller, uh, the set's uh, maybe shorter, the, the music quality maybe isn't that good, like the, there's maybe no uh, less lights or pyrotechnics or that sort of thing. And, and so it's just sort of smaller and, and simpler, but then when the, open, or the, the headliner takes the show, then boom, it's like, wow, you see the difference between those two performances performances, right? And they're supposed, to, they're supposed to contrast the headliner. They're supposed to make the headliner look better, right? So um, my, my country music phase, it, it didn't last long. Um, I started getting into my, my metal phase, and um, I, uh, I wanted to always see this as this certain band that had been around a long time before um, I was even born, um, but recently they stopped touring. I never got to see them play in, in concert, but this, there's a little-known uh, Australian band called ACDC, and I wanted to see ACDC in, in person because, um, they, all right, well, there's a song that came out in 1981, and it's called For Those About to Rock. And, and for me, this song is the ultimate warm-up song, right? This, is, this song is the one that, like, just 
yeah, you know, you, you hear it and you're like, here we go. So uh, for those about to rock, now um, the, the lyrics are great, but the cannon fire in the background is really what makes the song. And, and, and the, sort of the, the, the song begins with, with the lyrics, um, stand up and be counted for what you're about to receive. And then the lyrics go on, for those about to rock, we salute you. And then, right? And then, like, the, the, the metal of the guitar just screaming and, like, just head banging sort of drums. And you're, and you're just, yeah, right? So some of you, like, uh, some of you might go to a concert like that. And, um, and it's not your cup of tea, right? Some of you, go, you, you would hear ACDC, and, and it would be loud, and it would be obnoxious, and maybe offensive, and you'd be like, nah, I'm out. You leave. And that's okay. I'm not here to, you know, proclaim a gospel of, of metal, right? That's okay. Uh, but some of us, some of us would hear that, and, and we would we'd hear those words for those about to rock, and we would be out of our seats, and we'd be pumping a fist into the air, and we'd be screaming, and maybe some of us like slam dancing, right? And we'd just be like, yeah, right? This, th this is it. This is what I'm here for. I, I am here to rock, you know? So um, we're going through uh, the gospel according to Luke, okay? And we started this in December with our Advent series called Fear Not. Um, Luke is one of two Gospels that tell us about the birth narrative, right? About Jesus being born, the, the incarnation, right? One of two, two Gospels that, that does that. But Luke is the only Gospel that tells us about uh, the birth narrative of a guy named John the Baptist, okay? So um, if you'll remember from, from a few weeks ago, John the Baptist, his birth was also a miraculous sort of thing. His parents were uh, beyond childbearing age, and God made it so that his mother Elizabeth could conceive and, uh, and John is, 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 is a recipient of the Holy Spirit even from the womb, it says. And John is, has a special mission from God. And his, his mission is to be the opener. His mission is to be the guy that prepares the way for the headliner. His, his mission is to get you up on your feet, to warm you up, to get you ready. And it's also to contrast uh, a human mission with a divine mission. He's, he's there to contrast what, what Jesus' ministry will, will really look like, all right? So um, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 3, um, and I'm going to press pause. We're going we're to pray together, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in, okay? <sighs> Heavenly Father, let me catch my breath here. Father, I, uh, I pray for this morning. I pray for uh, the words that, that are spoken. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that they're yours and not mine. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you from, from the very beginning uh, for what you've done for us. That, uh, that you would exchange places with us. Um, I pray this morning that, that we would be reminded of that truth. And I pray for anybody who's here this morning who, who doesn't see their need for you. Who doesn't recognize uh, what, they're, what they're like without you. I pray that you would open up the eyes of their heart to see that. For those of us who, who are here this morning and maybe we're struggling in sin, uh, help us to be reminded of your great love for us and that repentance is always an open door for us. Help us to walk through that. Help us to obey you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna start Luke chapter three uh, beginning in verse two. 
It says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, um, John the Baptist, who is prepared to be the opener for the headliner, Jesus, takes the stage, right? And, uh, and God calls him out of the wilderness. Apparently, he's homeless. He calls him out of the wilderness, and the stage is the, 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 Judea, or the, the, the Jordan River Valley, and it's there that he begins to proclaim begins to preach. And you got to maybe understand this guy's appearance before we, we hear what he has to say. Um, Matthew tells us that he wears this camel's hair uh, clothing with a leather belt around it. Now, um, this is super frugal. This is like super minimalistic of John. Uh, this, is, this is using everything that he has available to him. If you think about it, a camel was not a source of food. A camel was, uh, was a source of transportation. Right? A camel dies, what do you do with a dead camel? Not much. But John, he sees a dead camel, and he sees you know, a new suit. And so he uses everything that, that he can use. This is the type of guy that he is. Um, he, he gets his protein from the air. Like he's literally catching locusts and feeding himself. And you could just imagine the crunchy sound of the locusts in his mouth and, and maybe like the little bits of locust legs in between his teeth. And he's eating honey like straight from the source. This is the opening act. And he comes onto the stage and Luke tells us that the nature of his proclamation is a baptism of repentance. He's loud, he's obnoxious, and he's offensive. He's offensive. So uh, Luke tells us the nature of his, his overall ministry, then he tells us uh, how, how he is the, the fulfillment of, of, of hundreds years old prophecy of, of Isaiah. Look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Um, this is a landscaping narrative, right? This is a, this is a picture of, of a landscape that needs to be changed. Uh, valleys filled up, mountains brought low. Now, um, Isaiah is not talking about uh, a physical change of land. He's talking about a landscape change that needs to take place in the human heart. It's a landscaping change that needs to take place in the human heart through repentance. This is what repentance essentially is. And so when Isaiah says, make his path straight, the crooked shall become straight, what he's referring to in, in the oldness with this, this idea of, of crooked roads or crooked paths is the ideas of lies that are believed. Falsehoods that are, that are clung to. And so what needs to happen in the human heart is that the lies need to be addressed with the truth and the crooked paths in our hearts need to be straightened. We believe lies, especially about our own identity and about God's identity, that need to be addressed. So when Isaiah says, every valley shall be filled... He's talking about the hidden recesses, the low parts of our hearts where, where shame and guilt hide in us. And these areas need to be brought to light and filled up with the grace of God. When Isaiah says every mountain and hill shall be made low, he's talking about the, 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 the high places in our lives that are, that are places of idolatry. Throughout the Old Testament, high places are places where people go to worship. And we have areas in our hearts 
that we put on idols and things that we worship, things that we turn to to save us, to give us value. And they are lesser things. They are not God things. They are not him. So there's idolatry that needs to be addressed. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. The landscape of your heart needs to change in order to accommodate the one who's coming. This is what John is saying. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Just so you know, this is offensive. You brood of vipers. And and according to Luke's gospel, he says that everybody that comes out, all of them, you are a brood of vipers, John says. This is offensive. And you got to read between the lines here to get the meaning of this. You are descendants of the poisonous serpent, the serpent of old, the rebellious one, the deceiver, the one who tried to, to steal the glory of God and just to place his throne above the throne of God's. Satan, you were a descendant of Satan. This is offensive. What he's saying is, is you're not good. You're not as good, especially as you think you are. You're a descendant of the deceiver. Um, Look at the second part of verse eight. We're gonna skip down a little bit. We'll come back. But he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You're a descendant of the serpent. You're not a descendant of Abraham. Don't look to Abraham to say that that you get your your, your righteousness from him or that God accepts you because of your DNA or because of the blood running through your veins. It doesn't matter if you're a descendant from Abraham. God can make descendants out of rocks. It doesn't matter. You're a descendant of the deceiver, of the the deceived one, of the, the, the rebellious one. This is offensive. He gets more offensive. Go back. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You are under God's wrath. God's angry with you. God's angry with you. This is a, God's angry at me? Yes, God is angry with you. This is the the, the words of John. There's wrath for you because of, of who you are, because of what you've done, because God has created you for a relationship with him. And you, along with the rest of humanity, you've rejected that relationship. You've rebelled against him. You've disobeyed him. You've gone your own way. There is none who is righteous. Not one. Not one. That's what John is saying. This is very, very offensive. He's saying to these people, look, your heart is crooked. Your heart is full of guilt and shame. It's full of of false worship and idolatry. You are the descendant of the the enemy of God, and God's wrath is against you. This is offensive. He's loud, and he's obnoxious, and he's offensive. And the choice is now, disregard what he has to say or own it. Leave or agree that what he's saying is the truth. A lot of people left, but some didn't. Some stayed. And they come out to be baptized. And I want to talk about baptism for a minute. Um, the, John's baptism is not a baptism for salvation. Okay? But because he baptized somebody, that, that, that doesn't mean that they were saved. Uh, baptism is not the means of salvation. Baptism is a response to the truth. He declares to them the truth that they are in need of salvation. 
They need to be saved. And these people say, I agree. I do need. I do want. And so they come out to him to be baptized. That baptism is, is just a ceremonial symbol. But it's a symbol of a person saying, I need to be saved. And the truth is, if someone says, there's nothing wrong with me, if someone says, God's not mad at me, if someone says, I'm a good person, if someone says, there's nothing, nothing about me that needs to be fixed, I'm okay. If a person doesn't recognize that they need to be saved, repentance doesn't mean anything. There's this recognition in a person who comes out to John and says, I want to be baptized. I want God to save me. I need God to save me. I hear the truth and I understand the truth and I need, I need the two most valuable words to say, I need. The person who says, I don't need doesn't get. So he goes on in verse eight. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You've just come out, you've, you, you've, you've been baptized by me, you've declared that, that you need to repent, you want to repent, so, so bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, you see your own spiritual need, now look around at people's physical needs. He'll go into deeper, into that practically in a second, but look at verse nine, or nine excuse me. He said, even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a warning of judgment, the fire of God's wrathful judgment. And he's saying, you can avoid this. Bear fruit, it, 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 it looks like repentance. You, you say you need, you say you, that, that you need to, that, that God needs to save you. Then look around and, and bear fruit according, accordingly. Look at the, the needs of the people around you. But, but there'll be people who, who don't see that. And who will say, there's nothing wrong with me. And so the salvation of Jesus that's coming through, through him, you'll reject it and you won't want it. And if you reject the salvation of Jesus, then God ultimately rejects you. That's John's warning. And then he gets practical, verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? This is the voice of someone who recognizes need. It's the voice of someone who recognizes that they, they have to have salvation. What then do we do? And he says this, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Then Luke uh, specifically addresses two groups of people. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Uh, John's exhortation to these people is the same exhortation that we see throughout scripture. You need justice, so treat people justly. You need mercy, so treat people with mercy. Walk humbly with God, not opposed to God. You love God by loving your neighbor. This, this is throughout scripture. We love God and we love one another because we recognize our need. So, John being the good opener, he creates anticipation for the headliner. But a good opener also serves as a contrast to the headliner. Look at verse 15 with me. 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered to them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, sometimes um, openers uh, try to steal the show. They, they, in an effort to, to, to promote their own name, their own group, their own label, their own uh, records, they will try to upstage the main attraction. But John doesn't do that. John's whole life is lived in order to point to someone else. His whole ministry is, is intended to, to exalt who Christ is. It's all about lifting him up and showing the world that their salvation doesn't come through him, doesn't come through his message. His, the salvation that they need is gonna come through Jesus. He points them to Jesus. And then he gives us another warning. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's a picture after uh, wheat is harvest, a uh, winnowing fork sort of tosses it up into the air, and uh, the threshing floor is, is hard-packed ground, and the heavier grain will fall out of the wheat and hit on the ground, and you can collect it. The chaff, however, blows away in the wind. And in this metaphor, the, the chaff, those who are, who are kept by God are those who, people who, are, who recognize their need for repentance and their need for salvation. And their salvation is at hand. But for those who would reject it and for those who would say, I don't need to be saved, they also are collected. And it says, thrown into unquenchable fire. It's another picture of the wrath and the judgment of God. And we need to hear it. Look at verse 18. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Luke calls it good news. Do you call it good news? Let's, let's be honest. If I, I come out here and I say, Jesus loves you, is that good news? You're a sinner under the wrath of God. Is that good news? Can you have one without the other? And see, Luke calls what John is proclaiming good news. The reality is, is if we don't embrace repentance, we can't have salvation. If we don't embrace who we are apart from God, if we don't embrace the fact that we have rebelled against him, that we are enemies of him, that we have rejected him, and that God's righteous wrath is upon us, if we don't accept that, the reality of that, we cannot accept the love of God in spite. We cannot see the grandeur of that love that overcomes all of our sin. You cannot understand the gospel without understanding your need for repentance. John, or, or Luke calls it good news. Herod didn't see that good news. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Um, Herod had taken his brother's wife, was living with her. John called him out on that. He addresses a bunch of other sins, apparently, in Herod's life, and uh, Herod didn't want to hear it. So he locked John up, and eventually he murdered him. 
See, there's two responses that you can have to the word repent. You can either submit to it and say, what do I need to do? Or you can reject it and act defensively against it and maybe even hurt or harm the person who's speaking it to you. How do you handle it when somebody in your life points out sin? How do you hear it? He couldn't hear it. So John, like a good opening act, is finished, so to speak, and he hands off the mic and he leaves the stage and here comes the headliner. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The, the first song that Jesus sings when he takes this, the stage, so to speak, is, is this song of baptism. He is baptized. And when that happens, not only is Jesus present, but the voice of the Father is heard and the Spirit of God comes down like, like a dove. The, the whole Trinity is there in this moment. But one of the things that I love about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke, more than any other Gospel, points to the Holy Spirit. Throughout the life of Jesus, we will see the Holy Spirit at work. Throughout the life of the church, in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit. But in, in this, I want, I want to highlight the voice of God the Father. And what is the Father saying? He's saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, here's, here's the truth. Some of you think that apart from the salvation of Jesus, you are already God's beloved son. You, you, you think that apart from the salvation of Jesus, God is already pleased with you that he's already satisfied with you, that he's okay with who you are. There is only one human being in history that God has been pleased with, the God-man Jesus Christ, the only one who lived a life and never rebelled against his father. He never rejected his father. He was completely faithful and obedient to the words and deeds of his father. There's only one in history who pleased God the Father, and that was Jesus. Uh, this chapter ends with a genealogy. And um, Matthew also has a, a genealogy of Jesus in it, but if you, if you compare them side by side, you'll notice there's some significant differences. Um, two differences, really. The first difference has to do with, with the names. You'll, you'll notice that the names don't line up. And the reason for that is that Matthew uh, traces Jesus' genealogy through his adopted father, Joseph. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through Mary. So that's why the names are different. But Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. And look at verse, the end of verse 38 with me. He says, The son of Adam, the son of God. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy from through Mary all the way back to Adam, and he says, Adam, the son of God. Adam, our first father. Adam, the man that God formed out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into. Adam, the, the first son of God, meant to glorify him, to be his image bearer, to show the world what God was like, failed because Adam rejected God and he disobeyed God and he walked away from God and sin and death entered our reality. And every human being since him, every son of Adam, every daughter of Adam has failed to please God because of our rejection of him, except for the God-man Jesus Christ. He alone. And he comes. And he takes on flesh. And he lives this holy, perfect, 
perfect life. And he takes that to the cross. He allows himself to be arrested and falsely tried. And he allows himself to be hung and to be crucified. And in that moment, the only one who ever pleased God, the only one who is ever pleasing to God, exchanges his righteousness for our sin. And in that moment, God is no longer pleased with him because he sees you and he sees me and he sees our guilt and our shame and Jesus absorbs the wrath of God in his flesh. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might know the righteousness of God. He exchanged places with us. And now because of him, when God looks at you, he's pleased with you. When God looks at you, he sees his son. When God looks at you, he loves you with that same love that he has for his son. Do you see how that exchange happens? But it's a salvation that is bought for you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you need that salvation. We all do. But it begins with one word, repent, in addressing the fact that you do have need, profound need. It says, in Matthew, when Jesus goes to be baptized, he does it to fulfill all righteousness. I want you to think about that for a minute, that here this, this holy, righteous person goes to John and submits to a baptism of repentance. He submits to a baptism. He doesn't need to repent of anything. He's perfectly holy and righteous. Why does he do that? To fulfill all righteousness means that Jesus is setting a standard for what it means to be righteous. He's the picture of righteousness. And so since he submits to it, he expects us to submit to it. Do, do you know that, that, that Jesus has never commanded us to do anything that he himself has not done? And, and to, be, to be honest and, and truthful, like being baptized is a command of Jesus, Matthew 28, 19. We're, we're told to go and make disciples, teaching people to obey Jesus. And one of the things he told us to obey was being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, we're called to be baptized. We're ordered to be baptized. We're commanded to be baptized. But Jesus sets the standard. And he who knew no sin decided to, to submit to this. He submits. He's baptized. Why? You see, in identifying with us, we can identify with him. By identifying with our sin and our guilt, we can identify with his righteousness. That's the point. By identifying with that righteousness, we get to have the love of God. We get to have an adopted father who looks at us and, and says, I am pleased with you. Pleased with you. Begin to wrap up here, and there's two things that I, I, I want to close with. A gospel according to Luke is written to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus' name means lover of God. Means lover of God. This book is written to the lover of God. Are you a lover of God? Are you a lover of God? I want you to ask that question. Examine your, am I a lover of God? It, it's written to the lover of God that they might know the truth about Jesus. That they might know the truth. And not just know the truth, but respond to the truth. So there, there's two points that I want to make. First, the lover of God repents. 
The lover of God repents. The lover of God recognizes who they are apart from who God is. They see their need and they turn from what they're doing in order to embrace him. The lover of God repents. If you're here this morning and you say, this message is offensive to me. This whole notion that I'm I'm not a good person, that's offensive to me. You don't know me. I'm a really good person. And the reality is you might be a very moral person. You may be much more moral than I am. That's not righteous. You don't compare yourself to me. You compare yourself to Jesus. That's the standard. And compared to Jesus, you're not good. Compared to Jesus, you're not pleasing. Compared to Jesus, you're not acceptable to God. Compared to Jesus, everything that you have done in order to to worship yourself and to create your own life apart from God has caused a break in relationship with him and you are under his wrath righteously so. And you hear that message that God would be angry at you and that's offensive to you. It may be, but it's the truth. It's the truth. You might be here today and... And you would say, I am a Christian. I am in Christ. I, I have embraced what he has done for me. I know that Jesus has come into me and he's, he's, he's straightened out the crooked pathways of my heart and he's brought truth in to, to bear and replace the lies. I know that he's filled the, the, the places and the recesses of my heart that are full of guilt and, and, and shame and, and I've seen how he's tearing down the places of my idolatry and, and he's, he's given me something to worship that really does matter. I am in Christ. I am adopted into his family. And I would say to you, are you a repentant person? See, repentance isn't just like the key that gets you in the door. There are two Christian disciplines that we exercise practically every minute of every day, and that's faith and repentance. It's believing in who he is and what he's done for us. It's embracing with faith all of this. And when we fail, we repent and come back. And there's this this unlimited supply of love and repentance that we have access to. Are you a repentant person? The lover of God is repentant. If somebody comes to you and and they they confront you in sin in your life, how do you respond to that? Do you hear that? The lover of God is repentant. Second thing I want to talk about is the fact that the lover of God is obedient. The lover of God is obedient. We are, we are instructed not just to, uh, to follow Jesus, we're instructed to obey Jesus in all that he's commanded us. I'm gonna talk about one specific thing. I'm gonna talk about baptism. Do, do you realize that because of the cross and because of what Jesus has done for you, the Father looks at you and he's pleased with you. Do you realize that, that, that God loves you right now and, and that love will never change? It will not be greater tomorrow than it is today. Like, God doesn't love you for the things that you do. If you, if you come forward, you get, you get baptized, that doesn't make God love you anymore. He loves you completely, fully, wholly. He has done everything to have a relationship with you. He has done everything. That's why he can spend eternity with you. He loves you so completely. Like, there's, there's not a gap in his love. There's not an insufficiency in his love for you. Right now, as you are, he loves you completely. His love is not in question. Ours is. The lover of God is obedient. Do you love him? 
not because it'll make him love you more. Because you want to love him more. You think about what Jesus did, and he submitted to be baptized. He didn't need to. He submitted so that you could identify with him. He identified with you so that you could identify with him. I gotta ask you, if you're in Christ, if, if you are a Christian, if you're adopted into God's family, if you've embraced who God is and what he's done for you, but you're an adult and you haven't been baptized yet, I gotta ask you why. Why? Baptism doesn't save you. You don't need to be baptized to, to check any box. You don't need to be baptized to make God love you. God's love is not in question, but your love for God is. Do you love God enough to obey him in all avenues of life? The lover of God obeys, and the lover of God repents. The question that we're gonna be asking over and over again through this series on Luke is, are we lovers of God? Who hear who God is, hear the truth about what Jesus has done for us, and we respond to it. Are you a lover of God? Let's pray. Father, I don't love you the way you love me. My love is small and insignificant and weak. I want to love you more. I want to experience more. Father, thank you that the nature of our relationship isn't reciprocal. That you didn't withhold giving your spirit to me until I got baptized. You didn't withhold uh, sending the third person of the Trinity to take up residence in me, to to be able to, to, to give me the very power that raised you from the dead. You didn't withhold that from me until I got dunked in a tank of water. But I recognize that the baptism, it's just a symbol. But it's a symbol of what's going on inside of, of us. We need salvation. We need, Lord Jesus, what you've done. Spirit, we need your power to overcome sin and to live effective lives for your glory. We need. I pray that we would see that all of these things that we need are not a matter of works. It's not a matter of us trying harder, but it's a matter of us seeing you and what you've done and loving you. Help us to love you more in Jesus' name.